Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there. Welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. My name is JJ Mull. I'm coming to you from Northampton, Massachusetts. I'll be your host for today. Um, I'm really thrilled to have on the program today Lynn Layton and Mariana Levy Speronis um, and to talk a little bit about their book that came out in the spring in March 2020 toward a new social psychoanalysis, culture, character, and normative unconscious processes out from Routledge in March of 2020, which I think, you know, maybe doesn't necessarily constitute a a quote-unquote new book, but I think within the context of COVID temporalities, perhaps, you know, essentially might as well be new. Um, And so briefly, I'll just give a bio of both Mariana and Lynn, and then we'll get started. So Mariana Levy-Speronis is a clinical psychologist in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She is a recent addition to the faculty of the Master of Social Work program at Smith College School for Social Work. She is also on the training faculty of the psychology intern training program at Cambridge Health Alliance, Harvard Medical School. Mariana completed her doctor of psychology and clinical psychology at the George Washington University and a Master of City Planning at MIT. Prior to clinical training, she worked as a community organizer and served as an Obama administration appointee in the US Department of Housing and Urban Development. She is a former fellow of the American Psychoanalytic Association, recipient of a Scholar Award from the Society of Psychoanalysis and Psychoanalytic Psychology, and has served on the board of Psychoanalysis for Social Responsibility also known as Section 9 of Division 39 of the APA since 2017. And Lynn Layton is a graduate and supervising psychoanalyst at the Massachusetts Institute of Psychoanalysis and part-time faculty in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She teaches social psychoanalysis in the Community Liberation Indigenous and Eco-Psychologies Program at Pacifica Graduate Institute, She is the author of Who's That Girl, Who's That Boy, Clinical Practice Meets Postmodern Gender Theory, and co-editor of Bringing the Plague, sorry about that, toward a postmodern psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis class and politics, encounters in the clinical setting. From 2004 to 2018, she was co-editor of the journal Psychoanalysis, Culture, and Society, She is a past president of Section 9, Psychoanalysis for Social Responsibility, and she is on the steering committee of Reflective Spaces, Material Places, Boston, a group of psychodynamic therapists committed to community mental health and social justice on the steering committee of the grass, and on the steering committee of the Grassroots Reparations Campaign. Um, Okay, thank you, Lynn and Mariana, so much for joining me on the program. It is a pleasure to meet with you both and speak with you both. And, you know, we were talking a little bit before starting to record, and I think I'm just thrilled to be talking to folks who 
really share a certain set of political commitments and the kind of intersection between that and psychoanalytic thinking. So I'm really pleased to have you here. Um, so it's a little bit of a trope on the program to start just by asking what brought folks to write the text in question. And I think since that this is an edited volume and kind of a compilation of work from you, Lynn, over the years, it maybe makes more sense to just kind of talk a bit about how this project came to be. Um, and so maybe I'll start with you, Mariana. I mean, how did you get involved in this particular project from, from Rutledge? And um, how did you meet Lynn? And how did this come into being? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure for us to be here and to get to talk with you. Um, so I, like you said in your intro, I was um, working on my doctorate at GW um, and, you know, had come to my clinical training, I think like a lot of graduate students increasingly with a pretty robust set of leftist politics, um, you know, which I had come to for, you know, in a variety of ways, which we could, we could talk about. But I had come to clinical training, I think with a bit of um, anxiety that there was somehow going to be this need that I separate my politics from a, a psychoanalytic lens. And I uh, was really fortunate in my graduate training to work with some supervisors who were really supportive and mentors, um, one of whom, Lara Shihai, introduced me to Lynn's work. So I was working on my doctoral uh, research on intersectionality and its applications in psychoanalytic psychodynamic treatment. And um, Lara, you said, you know, you've got to read, you have to read a text on linking. Um, it's just, it's going to change everything for you. And, and I did. And, you know, when I had heard of Lynn, her name was familiar, um, but that was the first piece of hers that I read. And then shortly after I went to the Division 39 conference, it was in 2016 in um, Atlanta and Lynn was giving a talk on intersectionality um, and its clinical applications. And you know, it was one of those where like, you know, I, you can probably feel this JJ as a graduate student, like you're sitting there and someone is saying something and like your head explodes because it resonates so <laughs> tremendously with what you've been trying to kind of muddle through. And suddenly it feels like there's a path forward and a way to think. And so, you know, my experience with Lynn's work was that it just like breathed life into these spaces that I was so hungry to be in um, and gave me, I think, both permission to think creatively and frameworks to understand why that kind of creative thinking has been so stifled in the field um, and, you know, provides ways to really formulate, um, to formulate how we understand the intersection between social and political life with, you know, what is sort of traditionally understood as interpsychic. So anyhow, so I, you know, you know, gently stalked Lynn after that conference and um, we struck up rapport. And then I joined the board of section nine. Lynn was the president at the time. So we got to know each other better that way. And yeah. And then she asked me to come on board to help see if we could make a book happen, um, which was just such an exciting opportunity and such an honor. So um, yeah, we had a lot of fun working on it. Fantastic. And, and Lynn, for your part, I mean, how has it felt to be to strike up this project in the last chunk of years, um, how has it felt for you to sort of engage in this process with Mariana? And, and, and really well, so Mariana stopped, stopped at the perfect point for, for me to enter. Amazing, um, amazing. <laughs> because for me, it was the stroke of very good luck to begin to work with Mariana. Um, I, a, a colleague of about my age, 
suggested to me that um, after uh, actually three tries of putting together my writings for a book, I, I would like 2005, 2009, um, and each time I would get bogged down in this intensely academic um, discussions of ideology with the Zizek and Bart and you know who knows what else and I and I just and I had a pretty horrible public pub, uh, publication experience with my gender book which I will not go into so there it was always difficult to just kind of like get myself to do it and um, this uh, older colleague of ours in section nine suggested that why don't you find one of our younger colleagues to work with this on? And as Mariana said, we had, we had struck up a rapport. And honestly, this book would never have happened without <laughs> having been able to work together with Mariana and just have wonderful conversations and pick the, pick the papers together and figure out the structure of the book. And um, I just feel so fortunate. And... We brought the book into existence at the same time that Mariana brought uh, her baby into existence. So it was just, just felt like new hope, new work, <laughs> new beings. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was great. It was great to work together. Amazing. Books and babies all coming into being, coming into fruition. I love that. I love that. Fantastic. Well, I mean, you both kind of touched on this a little bit, but I think I was interested in, especially given the fact that in both of your introductions to the book, you really go into some detail to sort of give a bit of your own biography and sort of your own personal trajectories. And in particular, I, I was really, really appreciated the extent to which you both really frame and speak explicitly to the different institutions that you both kind of engaged in and navigated in, particularly psychoanalytic institutions. And um, so I was hoping potentially just to have you both speak a little bit to your trajectories in psychoanalysis in particular and the kind of institutions that you've navigated in psychoanalysis and potentially the joys and frustrations of those institutions and the extent to which they they did or did not overlap with other commitments that you might have. Um, and so maybe, maybe Lynn, you could get us started on this one. I love that, again, the way you frame the question, because the first thing that came to mind as I hear you ask it is the personal is political. And that's how it all came together for me. Um, so I was in graduate school in comparative literature in the 70s. And um, I think I actually all had always been somewhat interested in psychoanalysis, but um, it was really get, because, I, because uh, there, there was a, a distinct conflict that was, became clear to me by the early 70s when I got married at the age of 22, that there was a great disparity between the norms that I was raised in, which were very 1950s um, gender, you know, gender binary norms of what's proper for a girl, what's proper for a boy, for a girl going to college still kind of was to get an MRS. And um, I did, I did that. But I also joined the feminist movement then. And, uh, you know, I, I, I could find like um, entries in a diary that said, I will never get married and I'm a feminist and <laughs> I'm going to. Uh, so the disparity between what I had internalized 
And what I was professing consciously um, was always somewhat clear to me. And so my respect for the unconscious uh, was present from, from an early moment. And, um, and so, and I was very fortunate, this was just like happenstance that at, the, uh, at Washington University where I went to school in Comp Lit, um, Telos, the, journal, the critical theory journal uh, that translated critical, German critical theory for an American audience, um, edited by Paul Piconi, was published there. He was the publisher and editor, and he created a circle of people around him. Um, and of course, the Frankfurt School theory was one, some of the first theory to integrate Freud and Marx. Um, so I was introduced to this, this tradition um, and, and ended up writing my dissertation on uh, the 19th century realist novel of Fontana and Flaubert. Um, but always putting the characters and the literature in the socio-political historical context. Also, the German department at Washington University was super left-wing and taught things like Marxist aesthetics. Um, not so interested in psychoanalysis, but, um, but with Paul Piconi uh, in our study group, our Telos Collective, we read Nancy Chattero, we read um, Said, uh, Orientalism, um, a lot of works that were in the Frankfurt School, Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse, not so much from then, because he'd been kind of marginalized by the Marcuse fans. Um, but uh, uh, we, I, I did get to read what I want to. And then, you know, being part of the feminist movement from the late 60s, uh, when I started getting into um, psychoanalytic circles, even before I was a psychoanalyst, uh, I was invited to teach, my, my institute is, um, has ways of being very non-hierarchical in, in contradistinction to other psychoanalytic institutions. And I was invited on, before I was an analyst, to teach courses in gender because I, I had just written a book um, on, um, called Who's That Girl, Who's That Boy? Clinical Practice Meets Postmodern Gender Theory, applying what I was learning from queer theory, from um, post-structuralism, to what I was experiencing in the clinic. So um, that I, I was asked to teach, um, to be part of their symposia. I can't say the students appreciated what I was teaching. <laughs> and that's where the, the issues start to come in. I, I felt a really strong anti-intellectual and anti-sociocultural context resistance in the students that I was teaching. So even though our institute always had a gender and sexuality course from its founding, always had a culture and psychoanalysis course, which I taught for years. It was very difficult to teach these things. Um, you know, there would be the occasional student who was gay or who just a woman who just got a divorce and, and started experiencing sexism. Um, you know, they, they, would appreciate, they would appreciate the papers that we were reading, like Judith Butler. But then there would be, I don't wanna read this stuff. It's too hard. Um, that kind of thing. So uh, if I have one more, in my graduate training, I had all these courses in multiculturalism and I don't want to read one more thing. And because I wasn't an analyst, it was very easy actually to disparage me as part of the um, disparagement of, of the courses. So um, yeah, but 
but she persisted. (laughs) And I always found the community. I always found the community early on in the relational um, psychoanalytic movement. Stephen Mitchell was very appreciative of my work. And I met Adrian Harris and Jessica Benjamin and Virginia Goldner and Muriel Dimon and was part of their collective when they um, were working on the journal Gender and Psychoanalysis and then the journal um, uh, that became, it became Studies in Gender and Sexuality. So that was one great community and Section 9 has been another great community. But let me stop there because I could talk about this actually all day. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Fantastic, Lynn. Well, there's a lot of juicy stuff in there, some of which I I feel like we might come back to later in the conversation, but I sort of want to kick it over to Mariana and just Mariana and just potentially ask sort of the same questions sort of, you know, just your own engagement with psychoanalysis as a field, how you came into it. I know you have a history in, as we said earlier, in urban planning and city planning um, which it's quite an idiosyncratic intersection, those two things in psychoanalysis. So um, maybe just speak a little bit to that. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, I get asked a lot about my, my career change, which is always so striking to me that it's sort of set up as somehow I like just right. radically deviated um, as though these fields are not already inextricably linked, which I, I, in my mind they are and always have been, but yet like, you know, we have these like really rigid ideas about disciplines too, right? And so I think that's something Lynn and I think a lot about how social psychoanalysis is inherently interdisciplinary. And I think that's why her thinking resonated so well with me because I think I came into it with the same sort of set of expectations that psych- I think I, I think I hoped psychoanalysis would be inherently interdisciplinary, was sort of vaguely aware it had a lot of resistance to that. Um, but anyways, just to back up, I, um, so I, was, you know, born and raised, um, in Newton, Massachusetts, um, very like left-wing political family. Um, incidentally also full of folks who practice psychoanalysis. Um, my grandfather was a psychiatrist trained as an analyst. Um, and then my mother was a social worker. She also trained as an analyst. My father worked in counseling before becoming a Marxist sociologist, read a lot of Freud. So there was a lot of talk kind of growing up. It was sort of in the drinking water in like mercifully a non-oppressive way, you know, talking about um, early experiences and kind of how people come to be who they are. And so I had, I think I just sort of grew up with like an interest and a curiosity about these questions. Um, And also like a really strong set of political convictions that I just came to, I think, you know, through the dinner table conversations in my family and just sort of what, um, you know, what was important, our sort of set of family values, so to speak. Um, Got to college, started reading Black Feminist Theory, felt like that provided for me a really meaningful framework with which to understand um, power and relationships and identities and myself in that matrix. Um, Wanted to become a community organizer, um, found work in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is, you know, right down the Merrimack River from Lowell, Massachusetts, where my um, paternal grandparents had immigrated from Greece and worked in the textile mills there. So worked there for a long time and then went on to MIT to study city planning and, you know, really felt a strong pull to do relationship-based work. And so was feeling kind of pulled in the clinical direction and also really 
felt like I didn't want to give up being a part of movements for change and really, you know, groups that were addressing systemic injustice and, um, and felt like I had to choose. And it was a really, really, I think, challenging time for me um, to feel pulled in these directions that seemed so, in academia, totally split. Um, and so, uh, you know, I studied city planning and in retrospect was really studying like large scale trauma, I think. Um, didn't have the psychological or psychoanalytic language for it at the time. But, you know, I go back and I read my thesis and it's, that's so much what I was trying to understand and really wrap my head around. Um, and then, you know, went on and worked at HUD and finally made the decision that I needed to, I needed to pursue a clinical path. It really was relationship-based work was really where my heart was. And I felt like I was just going to have to figure it out. There was going to have to be a way to be in this world, a psychoanalytic world and a political world at the same time. And I didn't know what that was going to look like. And that was really, that was um, hard. It was like, it felt like a really big risk to take. Um, And, but I felt like I was just going to have to figure it out. And, you know, was really fortunate then to connect with folks at GW who really helped me um, find a community relatively quickly. um, And Lynn being a huge part of that. So a little bit about my my path to all of this. Yeah. Can I just add, add, add this, this idea of finding a community feels so important to me um, because of the continuation of what we think of as an enactment of the separation of the psychic and the social in both psychology, not, not so much in social work, clearly, but in psychology and in psychoanalytic institutes. I left out a really important um, community of mine, and I, I just want to you know, give it a shout out, which is the um, Association for uh, Psychoanalysis, Culture, and Society. Mm-hmm. Um, and the journal that I was editor of for many years is connected to that association, Psychoanalysis, Culture, and Society. What the community it brought me into contact with um, was some folks here, but mostly folks in the, in the UK, um, and, and elsewhere in Europe who were really um, getting the field of psychosocial studies started uh, in, in the two, early 2000s. Wendy Hallway, Paul Hoggett, um, Simon Clark, who was my, the first co-editor for PCS. Uh, and, and these folks were in all different disciplines. So speaking to what Mariana said about interdisciplinary, there are all dis- different disciplines, but all interested in psychoanalysis and for me, that that community was and, and still is huge. So, yeah. Thanks for that, Lynn. I mean, I think that's so critical and so important to hold the sort of the importance of the the building of particular kinds of communities, whether or not that's intellectual or political. Um, and I think it segues nicely into starting to think about some of the content of the book. And I think as I was listening to both of you talk, um, all of these themes were emerging around this kind of disciplinary splitting and the ways in which particular kinds of knowledge production get siloed or get split off, um, which I think really, Lynn, I'm, is really at the heart of a lot of work that you've done over decades, really, is sort of thinking about the ways in which both at the intrapsychic level and at the social level, particular affects or particular ways of being get split off. Um, and so I think that's a nice place to sort of jump into starting to get a sense of your work, Lynn, and how it gets sort of encapsulated in this text that just came out last spring. So I think I kind of wanted to start just for folks who maybe aren't familiar with your work to sort of touch on some of the, the touchstones. Um, so, for example, 
but may perhaps you could give us a little bit of a distillation, for example, of normative unconscious processes as a concept, as a theory, sort of how you came to develop that sort of set of thinking, um, who you kind of felt you were in conversation with when you developed that concept. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. So the gender book that I wrote was largely arguing against post-structuralists that categories um, like femininity, masculinity, male, female, uh, black, white, could be facilitating as well as oppressive because there's the, you know, the, the kind of huge continental um, tradition uh, it, it insists on, has, was insisting on the oppressiveness of any identity categories. However, as I, you know, was, that I was becoming a clinician, um, which I began in the early 80s to become, um, it had started to become uh, clearer to me, maybe by the mid-90s, that um, there were ways in the clinic that we colluded in reproducing some of the, um, hi the hierarchies of gender, of sexuality, of race, of class. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm not sure about this because I'm, I'm often all wrong about where things started to develop. <laughs> and I'll tell you a little anecdote about that later. But um, I think I was working in women's studies at Harvard and I had a student, um, I was doing an independent study with and we came across this article by a, a pretty well-known person in the field who, and the article is wonderful. It's about neutrality and resistance. It, it lays out a very long vignette um, of the clinician who is male, white male, uh, working with a white um, young woman. And um, in the course of reading this paper, both my student and I were just horrified, actually, by the way that the therapist was not even colluding, but was, well, I guess you would call it colluding because the patient, the, the illness that the patient brought, which had largely to do with the split between autonomy and connection that was, be, was enforced <laughs> um, as a, a gender norm, um, that he was reproducing it. He was valuing autonomy over connection. He was discouraging her, like her, she was trying, you know, she was resisting. She was really trying to talk about her autonomy. It kept getting uh, reworked into um, some kind of uh, negative thing. Um, and, uh, and similarly, things around her sexuality, I felt like uh, other norms were being enforced, heterosexual norms were being enforced. And so that was kind of the first, um, first time I started thinking about this. And I, I did write about it. And you do not become a very popular person when you write about someone else's clinical work, which is why eventually <laughs> I started to write about my own, opening myself up to the charge that I'm not a very good clinician. But, um, but I, I also could find other examples in the literature, and one that is, I talk about in the introduction to the book uh, was a pretty well-known analyst named Lawrence Kuby, and I talk there about he also really in, enforcing a gender norm of what a proper female should be in the 1950s and 60s. And so, of course, as I was saying before, the personal is political. This is like really, this is home was home for me, and psychic, painful home. And so... Uh, I was on to it. And then, 
starting in the um, maybe 2000, around 2000, maybe a little earlier, people started, enactment is a very key concept in, in the relational and, and Kleinian um, canon. Uh, but in the relational school, people were really insistent on the fact that there are two unconsciouses always in the room. So this is where the collision idea comes from, that um, we are, therapists are as, as much shaped by cultural norms as our patients are, and if unaware, are very likely to um, reinforce and reproduce the same things that have caused psychic pain for the patient in the first place in terms of these normative uh, these splits that are demanded um, among human capacities, among ways of feeling, among ways of desiring. Um, so uh, Neil Altman, for example, wrote a, a really interesting paper called Black and White Thinking that was published in 2000 about an enactment, uh, an act, series of enactments that occurred between him and a, uh, he's a white um, Jewish man and an African-American uh, patient things around money, things around being a Jew, um, you know, all the things that this stirred up. Melanie Suchet was writing about this kind of work. And um, yeah, so, so uh, that's, where the, that's where the idea of normative unconscious processes came from. And they, it's always been connected for me with, so I did my psychology dissertation on Kohut. And um, although there, it was a critical, uh, it was critical of his work, particularly the, the way he separated, which I think is a gender issue, the line of self from the line of object love. So, in other words, if you shore up the self, you don't have to really do work work in the area of object relations. So, in an, in an early book um, that was a, a book of case studies that were cohesion, I think it was mostly his supervisees. You find these papers chapters where the person is like the, the patient comes in and he can't write or he can't play the violin he's horrible to his partner at the end of the work he's playing the violin and he's writing but he's still horrible to his partner <laughs> so so i thought that whole concept of the developmental line of the self getting separated off from the developmental line of object relations was problematic that said i do really appreciate his uh, understanding of what narcissism looks like in terms of the splitting, um, the splitting of the self, the difficulty regulating self-esteem because of the splits, the splits being basically um, grandiosity, the narcissistic wounding producing a split between grandiosity and self-deprecation um, in terms of relations to the other, idealization and devaluation, um, and then in terms of desire, longings for merger versus longings to withdraw. And so I found it very fruitful to put together the idea of um, how we unconsciously reinforce these norms with narcissistic um, wounding um, uh, of that kind. So for me, and you know, in, in, in the like the the patient who was in that case study, I talked about the splitting of autonomy and connection that was demanded of proper girls was was the thing that I was talking about earlier that became extremely problematic for me psychically, um, you know, straight through my analysis. My analysis really helped, actually. So <laughs> I'm a big proponent of psychoanalytic work. <laughs> I mean, I think this is really, I want to really hold on to this particular distinction or this particular contradiction between, or tension really between autonomy, connection, dependency, 
independency, which I think, again, is really a through line of your work and of this text in particular, and sort of thinking about how those contradictions show up at different strata of experience, whether it's the interpersonal or the structural. And I think something that I was just thinking about as you were talking, Lynn, is also the ways in which I think this concept of normative unconscious processes, like you said, I think as you start to delve into it and think about it in your own work, you really offer yourself up to a particular kind of vulnerability to criticism in a way, or it really sort of, it's a, I think there's a question of authority there. You sort of, there's sort of, it kind of undermines the authority, the, the sort of unimpeachable authority of the clinician, right? It's sort of, you are accepting the fact that you are unconsciously participating in these structures to some extent. And I, I think it made me think, um, you know, I, I think I want to pose the question to you, Mariana. I think I was thinking about your introduction to the text and you really start in your introduction with this vignette of yourself at, I think it was a, a psychoanalytic conference and, you know, and kind of, again, opening yourself up to a particular kind of criticism. And I'm, I'm just wondering how this is landing for you or what you think about all that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the refrain, like that's not psychoanalysis, like, you, you know, you just get it like everywhere. Um, and by the time at least I was giving the paper that I talk about in, um, the intro, you know, I mean, I had the good fortune to have, you know, Lynn in the room with me, so to speak, like not literally, but like I had read her work. I had her kind of, you know, I was carrying her in, you know, I'd internalized Lynn's work and that of, you know, Lara Shihai and other folks who, um, I think have really like integrated, um, psychoanalytic thinking with, you know, ideas about anti-oppression. And so I felt like, you know, certainly the ways that I've internalized white supremacy dictate that I need to make white people comfortable in the spaces where I talk. And so for me, right, the anxiety is still real when I say something and then there's pushback that somehow this isn't psychoanalytic, somehow, um, you know, what I'm saying is too far out. I must just be a bad clinician, right? I didn't, I was just, you know, at the with the case I was presenting, I was just so green, so to speak. I just didn't know better. Um, it's so, you know, patronizing. It's so gendered and so raced too, right? Because these criticisms come, surprise, surprise, from white people by and large. Um, you know, it's been no surprise, I think, for me and Lynn to, you know, come to understand that for people who don't, who struggle to think about how to integrate their clinical work with their activism, that's a concern that exists almost exclusively among white clinicians. So, you know, I think when, when we talk about towards a social psychoanalysis, it's important to hold that, you know, that involves holding and integrating the psychic with the social, with history, with our ancestors, with the political and economic systems that we're all living and breathing all the time which involves like seeing and feeling clinical practice and activism as inextricably linked. And that, you know, that's a, that's a fundamental part of what I think Lynn is talking about. And I think it's important to recognize that that is being done, lived and breathed and practiced by clinicians of color all the time. Right. I mean, Lynn's writing offers, I think a really important way to formulate how these splits play out intrapsychically the history behind them, how do we formulate, I think particularly with white patients in white, white dyads, 
what's going on and how has neoliberalism specifically in a context of white supremacy created these conflicts? Um, you know, Lynn and I were just talking about perfectionism yesterday specifically, right? Um, so I think it's important to hold that the, in some respects, the towards that is used in the title, I think is speaking partly to, to white clinicians out there. You know, I think the hope is that this book is, can feel resonant for clinicians of color and clinicians of all sorts of class background. Um, and yet there is an awareness, both Lynn and I, we identify as white, I identify as a cisgender woman, upper middle class family. I bring a certain set of identities, obviously, and, you know, power relations um, to my work, to what I see as salient. Um, and so it's, um, it's not lost on me that it's, you know, my demographic that needs to do the work um, largely <laughs> um, in this area. So anyhow, I, I think I may have just diverged a little bit from the question, but um, I, that's just where my mind was going. It's, it, it, can I just add something just for, um, yeah, because the, the, what Mariana is saying really speaks to the, um, the anecdote that I referred to earlier um, and, and to your question, JJ, because um, one of the reasons, one of the things that attracts me to the, to the relational school um, besides what I mentioned before, which is crucial that there are two unconsciouses in the, in the room, um, is that it does contextualize things in terms at least of <laughs> uh, the, fa the family, but doesn't reduce things to the family, but it, it, the focus is on development through relationship. Um, and also it has deconstructed the idea of authority uh, with the idea of co-construct, that, that therapies analyses are co-constructed. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, that, that's definitely one of the things that, that I, I'm drawn to. Um, and in relation to the, the idea of vulnerability and the lack of knowledge, the, the difficulties with knowledge, um, buried or, uh, pretending to, pretenses to knowledge. This morning, before we started, I, for some reason, decided to go back and look at this early paper that I wrote, like in 2002, which was called um, something about the free individual. And, and this, this was part of what I was saying was going to be this earlier version of this book. Uh, it's all about ideology. It's all about how these, uh, most of the Marxist psychoanalytic thinking focused on the ideology of the free individual as, as the problematic um, issue in bourgeois culture. And um, although by the time I wrote the article that Mariana first mentioned about the splitting of the psychic and the social attacks on linking, I was thinking only in terms of bourgeois ideology capitalism, but had lost the race piece. This is, this is how I'm connecting to what Mariana is talking about. And when I went back and I looked at this, this paper, I talk about Barth, Roland Barth, and his idea of um, what at the heart of bourgeois ideology is ex-nomination, that you take yourself as man. And in the paper, I said, um, uh, I'm going to read it, uh, what Barth calls ex-nomination by which the class that has the most economic and symbolic power refers to itself as man or human, anything but white or upper middle class or owners of the means of production. And I think that I lose, refined, lose, refined um, as 
an example of how white supremacist ideology works. Uh, that awareness that the separation of the psychic and the social is every bit as much a white thing as it is a, a class thing, um, yeah, and a gender thing. So the, again, the respect for unconscious process—it's it, it, it's daunting how you know our ideologies and our identifications, you know, and the attempt to distance ourselves from vulnerabilities keep this these processes of disavowal going all the time, not knowing mm -hmm. what you know. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think, Lynn. I mean, I think this idea of disavowal, I mean, this is something that comes up in the book, particularly in the last chapter in this sort of really beautiful essay, Transgenerational Hauntings. And I, it makes me think about just sort of, in some ways, the, um, you know, the kind of, the fit that there can be in that sort of, I think you both illuminate in a ways between a particular lineage of radical political or sort of Marxist thinking and psychoanalytic thinking in that both of these strands of thought really take up that which is disavowed or that which is repressed um, or that or kind of reckon with this dialectical tension between that which is manifest and that which is latent and the things that sort of are the propulsive motors of history that sometimes get scrubbed out. Um, and and you both, I mean, you both mentioned this particular essay of yours, Lynn, the sort of attacks on linking essay. And I wonder if you would just take a moment to, for those of you who aren't familiar with the work, talk about this sort of concept of linking and unlinking, um, you know, and kind of what that's in conversation with. And you've kind of touched on it a bit, but sort of maybe flesh that out for folks listening if they aren't familiar. Okay, I'll flesh it out as much as I can, because in truth, it was kind of something cute <laughs> that I did, and not really, <laughs> perhaps not as deep, uh, but maybe for it resonated for you as something deeper <laughs> than it was. But I mean, the, the, the idea, which I think would require a bit of putting together Eric Fromm and um, beyond, um, would be that uh, culturally, there are things in order to be loved and to feel like you belong, you have to repress in, 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 in um, Fromm's terminology back when he was, you know, writing, repression was really understood to be the main um, uh, psychic defense mechanism from Freud. Um, whereas I, I lean more these days towards disavowal um, because I do think that uh, as I was just illustrating in my own life, <laughs> Um, there's things we know, like this article that you're talking about, the transgenerational hauntings I wrote in 2017-18, um, but back in 2002, I knew it, and then where did it go? Where did it go? Um, so uh, anyway, um, so if you put together Fromm's ideas of all the things you have to repress um, or disavow to, be, to belong, to be loved, to not feel isolated, uh, which for him is the worst thing, social isolation, um, with Beyond's ideas that um, psychic distress and trauma, uh, severe trauma, um, uh, un uh, attacks the mind and causes an, an incapacity to link things and to make, to make meaning. And, you know, I, when I um, saw patients, when I supervised, um, 
cases where the patient is like severely traumatized, that the resistance in the treatment uh, basically often revolves around this attack on, on linking, linking anything that the analyst says to meaning or momentarily linking it and then delinking it. So I use the, the term um, to talk about the profession, our profession's um, and when I say our, I do mean psychology and psychoanalysis. I do not mean social work. Um, the attack on the link between the psychic and the social and the, the pretense that the psychic can be understood. Again, it's, it, it, it's this Bartian idea of ideology um, that it's universal. Um, you know, there's, yeah, um, there aren't gender differences. There aren't racial differences. Um, I just see everyone as human, i.e. me. Um, that's the narcissism piece coming back in. Uh, so, um, uh, yes, I, I see, see this as a constant reproduced attack on linking the psychic and the social, and that, that shores up white supremacy, it shores up um, upper class, uh, an upper class uh, culture um, against any attempts from below to challenge it. And, uh, and it's only when you're listening, like Mariana was talking about, when you're listening to the voices, which I have been, again, increasingly recently, because there's a lot of speaking up going on, thank goodness, in our field. I just had heard a webinar a couple of months ago called Join the Reckoning, where people in our field were talking about how harmful training programs have been. Um, how, you know, people, other folks saying, I, I couldn't read the material, people of color, I can't read the material, it's too fatiguing, it's too draining, it, 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 it violates my experience. Um, uh, so if I think there's hope um, if we listen to bring the psychic and the social back together in these disciplines, and I do mean here, discipline. Yeah, anything to add to that, Mariana? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm just, I was, as Lynn was talking, reflecting on what I think is so valuable, particularly about section three of the book, you know, Transnational Hauntings is the last piece, but I feel like in that section, Lynn does this really amazing job of articulating the severely traumatic effects of a neoliberal economy on the psyche and the ways in which it necessitates the delinking of the psychic from the social, you know, as capitalism has historically, but in this new iteration, it also has the profoundly pernicious effect of making you think that you are somehow making individual choices, right? And that any failure that you experience in your life is a result of those, the failure of those individual choices, as though you even had a choice to begin with, right? And, you know, this is something that Lara Shihaya talks about too. And, but I think, you know, in, what I found so enormously meaningful in Lynn's work was really this understanding of these deeply pernicious effects of neoliberalism. And the, I think she puts it really beautifully around, you know, the defensive autonomy that it generates. And I love the way she says, you know, defensive autonomy is really not that autonomous after all, right? Like the sort of manic dependency coupled with you know, manic dependency on approval from others, but also the denial of those dependency needs, which is required by a neoliberal economy. And so it's like, how could you not suffer under those circumstances? And yet we have no way of understanding that. I mean, I think as psychoanalysts, really like that, that's not being formulated 
in our clinical work. Um, it's not being talked about in our case conferences, right? It's not part of the discussion. And yet it's impossible that it's not profound, at least somewhat, if not profoundly showing up in our patients' lives and experiences and minds. And um, so anyways, I just, you know, I think section three just provides this really um, essential contribution to how we how we think clinically, um, you know, with our patients and with one another. Yeah, I'm so glad, Mariana, that you that you mentioned this particular section of the book because I think it's it's something that I really, really wanted to touch on and feel like it's really important to touch on because it it really does feel like in some ways sort of the linchpin of the tax. This final section of the book um, that for listeners is sort of focused primarily on neoliberalism as a sort of political structure and the ways in which that ends up structuring or affecting the development of particular kinds of subjectivity. And I think as we were also talking about earlier, we were talking about this, and you were just bringing this up, Mariana, this sort of tension between dependency needs versus independence. And at multiple times in the text, Lynn, I think you describe it as this production of a particular kind of sovereign subject, this sort of subject as a sort of self-contained, um, self-contained sovereign entity, rather than something that is something or someone that is constantly bound up in others. Um, and so, I did want to spend a little bit of time on this third section in particular, and um, and maybe Lynn, you could speak a little bit to for the listeners about how processes of financialization, global capitalist restructuring, changing conditions of labor, um, you know, that sort of date back for, for many historians and economic thinkers to around sort of the 1970s. Um, maybe you could spend a little bit of time talking about how you think this, maybe also just for listeners sort of encapsulating a little bit of your understanding of neoliberalism as a concept and then how that shows up in your thinking about subjectivity and psychoanalysis. Sure. Well, again, uh, in, in the idea, the thread running through here of the personal is political, um, what, one of the things I try to do in the introduction to that section is talk about these moments in my life um, where things that seemed you know, weird, um, but in retrospects are normal, uh, like um, the way a meritocracy might function in academia where one person gets all the goods, goodies and the rest of the class or the rest of the faculty gets nothing. Um, these things started to, you know, uh, take on more meaning when I began to read outside the field. Again, you have to read outside the field <laughs> to, to get these ideas um, on, on what was happening uh, culturally starting towards the end of the 70s. So people like David Harvey, um, uh, Nicholas Rose, you know, lot, lots of people were, were writing about this from the early 80s. I, I again, uh, don't feel like I quite got that, that that's what was going on until maybe like around 2007, 8, 9. Um, but as Mariana was just talking about the defense of autonomy thing, I, I did in, night, in the mid-90s, I, I didn't include this paper in the book, but in the mid-late mid, 90s, um, I did recognize that uh, upper middle class students, I was te- female students I was teaching at Harvard 
um, both black and white, were more resonating with the idea of defensive autonomy as more con connecting with that as their psychic structure, uh, as resonating with what, how they understood themselves than the relational female literature that I had found resonant with my own experience. So um, as I started to understand more and more about neoliberalism, I started seeing that how it incorporate, how it co-ops all these different groups. So um, uh, one of the chapters uh, in the book talks about the effect, psychic effects of neoliberalism on upper class, upper middle class, on uh, working, uh, I drew on a, a study that Jennifer Silva had done to look at working class white and black uh, young adults. Um, I talked about the um, criminalization of African Americans, drew on Loie Guacan's work on the uh, relay between the hyper ghetto um, and prison. Um, again, all of these things just from reading outside, they're starting to make sense. They're all connecting for me. Uh, with these, these policies that you're talking about of globalization, financialization, um, disposability. I think that was the first, the first concept I got was disposability and the vulner, kind of vulnerabilities that that, that caused um, and what it did to empathic capacities, um, this sort of grooming to have contempt for anything that's not making it, any group or a person that's not making it economically. I mean, Trump is like the super incarnation of this cultural issue where you're either a winner, him, or you're a loser, everybody else. <laughs> of course, you might be a winner if you say he's great, but otherwise you are a loser. And that, I mean, he, he is, he is the epitome of the neoliberal neo um, mindset and, and of neoliberal policies. What he's done with immigration, um, you know, just concretizing in policy this disgust and contempt for vulnerability for, um, yeah, anything that isn't the, uh, well, it, it, as Mariana said, it doesn't work for any group. It doesn't work for any group. Um, this kind of uh, dis, dis, intense um, splitting of autonomy and care and connection and uh, mutuality. Uh, you know, I, I do think we see some hope, maybe. Uh, well, principle of neoliberalism that, whoops, sorry. Principle of neoliberalism, um, that I uh, didn't mention, and well, I mean not mention uh, the the attack on big government, um, which started with Margaret Thatcher in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the US. Um, despite you know, again connecting with that idea ideology of the free individual, don't tread on me, don't you know, I'm not wearing a mask, I'm not getting a vaccine. Anything that that the government does is bad. So, you know, how is this helping anyone? Um, in, in the culture right now, everyone's die, dying of whiteness, as Jonathan Metzl um, might, might say it. So, um, yeah, so, the, so I think we're in a period where, um, and many, I've listened to many a webinar, again, that's, that's hopeful, and many a webinar that isn't so hopeful, um, where, I'll pull, a, I'll pull a, a, a metaphor from one of them, we're in a zero-gravity moment, this person said, 
where everything is just totally up in the air and bad. <laughs> and the question is, how is it going to land? Is it going to land in a New Deal direction where we, again, recreate some kind of safe social safety net, welfare state, where we care for each other? Or is it going to land, as Naomi Klein may, might predict, in a um, you know, shock doctrine kind of doubling down on, uh, on neoliberalism? So there's so much to say, more to say about neoliberalism, but I, I think I'll, I'll leave yeah. it there. I mean, I think that sort of segues nicely into some sort of the zone that I kind of wanted to land on with both of you or sort of wrap up with in some ways is just, you were just calling attention to Lynn, the obviously catastrophic and very sort of particular historical moment that we find ourselves in presently. Um, and and this book in fact was, was, was birthed, as you said, um, right at sort of the precipice of the current pandemic um, was right, came, directly prior to, I think, the, the just incredible insurrectionary movement that sort of erupted in the early summer in the wake of the brutal murder of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis. Um, and so I think I really wanted to, in the end of this interview, really sort of give you both a chance to speak a little bit to um, the contemporary moment and the ways in which the the sort of influx of political activity in the moment, sort of in the streets and elsewhere, how we might listen to that in a way and what those movements might have to say to psychoanalysis as a field, if anything. Um, and perhaps does psychoanalysis have anything to tell us about or instruct us about what these movements are and sort of who should we be listening to in this moment? And you know, you both have really called attention to at multiple points in this interview, a really rich lineage of, in particular, Black feminist thinking. And I know, Lynn, throughout the book, you you refer to the Gumby River Collective as like a really central, formative place of thinking and learning and thinkers like Stuart Hall. And, um, and so I think, yeah, again, I just want to sort of end on what you all are thinking about now in this current moment, things that have been arising for you in the wake of, you know, the recent presidential election, really just what, just give you a venue to talk about what's coming up now in the moment and anything that's present. Yeah. And maybe, maybe Mariana, you can get us started and then we'll, we'll kick it to you in. Yeah. Sure. Um, I think, you know, what I think I find so um, exciting and moving and, transformative about what's happening right now is the, and this is specifically due to the leadership of Black women, that there is a refusal to comply with the disavowal that has been required of us. And that is where I think what is happening in the streets is, go, it needs to impact psychoanalysis, right? Because that, I mean, that's what psychoanalysis can help us to understand if it's willing to, right? Like if those dominant in the field are willing to either do that or step aside, then I think we have a real opportunity for um, just enormous um, synergy, right? Like how, how, how are these things possibly even separate is something I struggle to even understand, right? And so I think, um, you know, I mean, coming from a community organizing background, I think that 
you know, understanding psychoanalysis in the way that Lynn does really helps us to center everything about interdependency and, you know, the importance of power relations, historical context, all of that, and which is what this movement is talking about, right? That is precisely what this movement is about. And so I think that these are, it feels like one in the same in so many ways to me, you know, this way of thinking psychoanalytically with what this movement is both doing and demanding. So I feel like it's an enormously um, generative moment. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, I think that this is a moment where those in psychoanalysis can really both like create a new way of being and working, breathing, feeling, doing, practicing in our field with each other and our patients um, that can in turn feed and resource and nourish the movement in the streets and be one in the same, really, I don't even want to think of them as separate because that's a, that's a, should be a false binary. Um, and that this movement in turn is given the space to speak to us as a field. Those are, you know, people who may not themselves identify as activists can be open to hearing and holding um, what is being offered and required and demanded. And so I think that there is tremendous opportunity right now. Um, you know, and, and that requires the daily commitment to doing this work. Um, so, yeah. you know, that's, that's where we are, I think. How about you, Lynn? Yeah. So um, our colleague, Mariana, and I deeply love Lara Shihai, she was previously mentioned, um, just did an extraordinary presentation on what she called uh, anti-oppressive practices, um, treatment, um, and, um, this is where, for me, the toward part of toward a social psychoanalysis, people like Lara, um, uh, you know, just moving this into, um, well, I think the book, the book is appearing at a terrible time, um, for, certainly from, a, uh, from the perspective of like being out there, um, you know, like going to conferences and stuff like that. From a narcissistic perspective, it's a terrible time. Um, on the other hand, and this is also a narcissistic perspective, people want to hear this now. It's the first time in my life, like Mariana was talking before, like how many times have I heard what you do is not psychoanalysis? That's not psychoanalysis. Well, that is not happening now. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of talks and presentations and um, uh, yeah, so um, there is people, deaf, white people in particular, definitely want to hear this, definitely need to hear this. Um, and we need to be listening to what people like Lara are saying. Uh, I listened to an amazing webinar that was came through our insurance company, the psychologist insurance company, <laughs> The Trust, with Janet Helms, African-American psychology theorist. Um, not, I don't think she considers herself in the psychoanalytic tradition, I, I don't know. She's, she had developed the racial identity stages theory. Um, she talked about what she called white heterosexual male privilege, WHMP, which she pronounced WIMP, uh, and talked about how it is the root cause of all the things that we treat, um, all the things we see our patients suffering from. So, you know, I, I, I feel like we must listen to, to these voices. Uh, so that's, with, that's within the field. Um, Mariana and I have been trying to 
again, this is this is the anti-narcissistic piece. We've been trying to do our uh, some of our events uh, in a way that decenters our whiteness, um, and uh, and so yes, I think feel like this is a moment where we need to be listening to Black Indigenous people of color. So that's a little uncomfortable for me to be now appearing everywhere, um, but it is true that white people need to hear this so and can hear it more from a perhaps from a white person uh in terms of like the broader cultural that you're referring to jj um i have some concerns and and i i feel like the concerns are are uh, mostly around what i'm starting to feel might be a splitting in the left um the white left and um I, so I've been very involved in anti-racism work in, in a reparations campaign for the last few years. And most of what I read and think about is by black writers and um, um, thinkers. For example, I've been <clears throat> amazing podcast under the black light that Kimberly Crenshaw um, moderates uh, most weeks. And um, and I'm part of a group called Acting for Racial and Economic Justice in my um, faith congregation insofar as there's faith there. It's a secular Jewish um, humanist organization. And we are working on, we have taken this reparations campaign that I'm part of and brought it into our work and have noticed that uh, a lot of the white folk, we're all white, um, the white folks who are about my age um, and who are very, have been very active in Marxist class-related left um, traditions, labor, the organization was founded by um, uh, laborers, Jewish laborers, immigrants in the late 19th century, Worker Circle, Boston Worker Circle, ours is called. And um, so we're, we've been trying, because they were doing a lot of election work, they couldn't do it within our organization because we're 501, whatever it is. I've also been doing a huge amount of election work. Um, and. Uh, but simultaneously doing this reparations work. So now what, I, what I've just recently started to see is that there's a, a, a new split emerging where the white, um, mostly male, but not exclusively male activists, older activists, are wanting to talk to white people to bring them, you know, is it trying to deal with the polarization that we see in the United States by reaching out, talking to white people, convinced that um, somehow that people of color have, you know, th that they're being peeled away, very, very small numbers are being peeled away, um, and that we have to like downplay things like defund the police, reparations, these are, these are gonna be boogeyman words to white population. I think Joe Biden kind of agrees, um, which is, you know, the, the worrisome piece here. And I, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm starting to feel, and I don't know if this is accurate, but this is a hypothesis, that they are feeling, this is one, a way that these, this group of people is feeling left behind by all the attention to um, blackness and um, anti-racism. Um, you know, they will certainly say we have to make life better for black people, but the way they seem doing it is through class. And, the, and talking to white people. And having done a lot of text banking and phone banking over these past like six or seven months, I can tell you I have no interest in that. <laughs> None whatsoever. I do not think, I mean, if anything, I think we might be headed toward a civil war in the United States um, 
the polarization is awful, but it's a, it's a maniacal cult, um, you know, building on many different American traditions of self-reliance and don't get in my face, but neoliberalism has taken it to its uh, extraordinary, um, you know, anti-public health. I don't care about anyone but me and my little close-knit community um, uh, place. So I'm worried and uh, trying to trying to understand what's going on. At, um, I feel like I feel a lot of hope. My institute has, like many, many, many places, started an anti-racism task force, and um, you know we are almost exclusively a white institute, but it, it's bothering us now. Whereas these many years, including myself, didn't notice really notice it. Um, so. So I do feel like, and I've seen this at other institutes where I've been presenting too. I, I do think there's yeah. there it's a hopeful yeah. Thank moment. Thank you, Lynn. And I think and a you know, moment. that's such a good set of things to sort of land on. I think. I mean, I think this particular split that you were just talking about, this split between, you know, a kind of class reductionism or thinking about race and class as things that are in, entirely separate. Um, when, as we've talked about, I mean, I think there is such a rich lineage already in a certain black radical tradition that thinks of race and capitalism as two processes that are inextricably bound up in one another. There's no such thing as non-racialized capitalism, right? Or, right. you know, or as, do, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I just, I do want to say you talked about the Kambahi River Collective yeah. going through the book. I, I have this not so great feeling that it's the black feminism that has really like, um, uh, become dominant in black thinking, uh, the intersectionality, queerness, um, you know, this, that has not always been part of the, the black uh, male intellectual tradition, for sure, radical tradition. So I think some of that is also creating anxiety in the, um, in white people. Yeah. yeah. White ma males, perhaps. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, well, you know, as happens in the therapeutic context, we are coming up against a time boundary. Um, but I just wanted to just briefly touch on, you know, generally on the program, folks are given just a little bit of space to hear what, what you're up to now, what kind of projects you're up to now. Um, just maybe just a sentence or two of sort of what's, what, what, what's on the horizon. Um, and how about you, Mar Mariana? Yeah. Um, so... Uh <laughs> been an interesting point in my career, figuring out what I'm going to do next. The pandemic definitely um, threw things for a bit of a loop for a while. Um, but I am, um, yeah, I'm joining the faculty at Smith. So working on, you know, conceptualizing uh, a syllabus for critical approaches to child development, anti-racist, um, you know, drawing on uh, queer theory, um, critical race theory. I'm excited about that. And, um, you know, doing some teaching at Cambridge Health Alliance, maybe starting a private practice, still figuring that out. Um, yeah. And sort of open to the next, um, the next phase, I think. Um, yeah. It's, it's been a bit of a complex time for me as a, as a new parent, uh, new, newly licensed professional in the pandemic to kind of figure out next steps. Yeah. How about you, Lynn? So, because I've had the um, financial luxury to be able to retire, and I'm not—I don't do practice anymore. I do supervise, but um, consult. But I, I don't see patients. So, 
what I've been doing really since, since I retired is activist, social activism, um, and, and this book. Um, so right now I'm very involved in the Georgia, uh, I've been very involved in Georgia. That's one of my states actually. So I'm really excited, working really hard, uh, on, on Georgia. Um, academically, uh, or, you know, psycho, social psychoanalytically, I've been talking to some colleagues about um, perhaps doing an edited book on technique, on what a social psychoanalysis would look like in terms of technique and further deconstructing um, some hegemonic uh, uh, psychoanalytic concepts, um, as I, some of it, which is, is in that book, some of which is in the gender book, um, but to push that, push it further. Uh, there's also, I think I'm, I'm going to be contributing a chapter on social psychoanalysis to a handbook on um, the psychosocial tradition that Stephen Frosch and Julie Walsh are editing um, in the UK. So, um, but I want to do this, I want to do these things differently. I want to do them collegially. I want to, like, my voice will be, you know, backgrounded to other voices and, um, yeah, so, and Marianne has been super wonderfully helpful <laughs> as someone of another generation, I think, um, and also an amazing lefty thinker in helping me think about all of these things that we're doing together, these book events that we're doing together and trying to think of a way to do them uh, differently. So that's what I'm up to. All right. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, and have a great day. And to all of you listeners, um, you know, take care out there and onward and upward. Um, okay. So long. Bye-bye.